open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an excellent interview today with Bart Stevens. He's a venture capitalist with Blockchain Capital. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Bart. Thank you, Trace. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, have a discussion with you here. Yeah, so you've been invested in over 37 Bitcoin companies. You're pretty much one of the only funds out there that has a specific mandate investing in Bitcoin specifically. I just kind of like to know how in the world did you get here? I mean, what's some of your background, other things you've been involved with? Like, why in the world are you specifically mandated with this fund to be investing in Bitcoin? Like, what's the trail that you've taken? So uh, I'm one of three partners at Blockchain Capital. My brother, Brad Stevens, is the other partner, and Brock Pierce uh, is the third partner. We've been dedicated venture fund investors in the blockchain and Bitcoin ecosystem for about the last two and a half years. As you mentioned, we've invested in 37 companies, most recently Abra and Chain, and uh, we have a deep passion for the sector. Relative to your tenure in the industry, I'm a, I'm, I'm a newcomer. My background really as, as a tech entrepreneur and hedge fund manager and general tech investor for roughly the last 20 years, we've been deeply involved in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. My path to discovering Bitcoin is, is a bit of a strange one. Uh, about eight years ago, Brad, my brother, and I invested in a virtual currency uh, startup company for video games. Mm. So you might be familiar with persistent world video games like EverQuest or World of Warcraft or Second Life. Turns out these games have rather sophisticated economies. And we were running a large hedge fund at the time and invested in a lot of the video game publishers that were publicly traded. And as we investigated these persistent virtual worlds, we noticed that these games had in-game economies and in-game virtual currencies. And we found a pretty interesting correlation for the price of in-game currency with the overall success of the game. And so we were doing um, research into these on the virtual currency markets for video games. And we started buying currency on the secondary market as tests. And as we started going to some of the various uh, shopkeepers, we did reverse DNS lookups and realized that the entire market for buying virtual currency in World of Warcraft was essentially already owned and cornered by one person. That person's Brock Pierce. And so as a 24-year-old entrepreneur at the time, Brock had recognized an opportunity in virtual currency, had uh, made a series of acquisitions in the space, and basically rolled up an industry before most people realized it exists. So if you fast forward maybe five years from, from there, probably three years ago from today, we invested in that company along with Goldman Sachs and uh, Maverick and Oak, very large investment firms that were very excited about virtual currency and its application in video games. Uh, my brother went on the board of that company, and that business has continued to grow and thrive. It has dominant market share for the exchange of virtual goods. But about three years ago, Brock, who was the CEO and, and chairman of that company, now is just the chairman, approached the board of directors, and he wanted to make an acquisition into in the world of cryptocurrency. 
He had identified an asset that was struggling from an entrepreneurial perspective and that had suspect technology, and this asset was Mt. Gox. And so once the Mt. Gox acquisition got brought up at the board level of this video game digital currency company, we were forced to take a look at the Bitcoin ecosystem and the underlying blockchain technology that enables it. Long story short is that we didn't end up making that acquisition, but it opened our eyes to Bitcoin and its potential asymmetric return profile that's very exciting as a venture capitalist. And soon after that, we stopped a lot of our other investment activity to form the predecessor company, Cryptocurrency Partners, now called Blockchain Capital. Wow. So... That's that's a huge history there. I I find these virtual these virtual currencies and these virtual worlds just fascinating. There've actually been quite a bit of uh, academic studies done on being able to test economics basically and different policy changes and how that's going to affect like in a real environment. And so it kind of makes you wonder if Bitcoin's a test of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> also. No, it's, but, stakes are a lot higher in Bitcoin than in, than in video games. Yeah, exactly. So why would you name it a uh, blockchain capital? So a couple of things is uh, Bitcoin and blockchain are inextricably linked, but we don't believe they're limited. And by that, I mean, there is a scenario um, that some people foresee where Bitcoin flattens out in user adoption or flattens out in price. Let's say it stays within the kind of 150 to 250 band that, uh, or 350 band. There's a lot of people to talk about a need for consumer adoption for Bitcoin. What are the quote unquote killer apps? And in that type of environment where Bitcoin, let's say, kind of middles along, there is an opportunity for other participants in the ecosystem to leverage blockchain technology for the exchange of other assets besides uh, Bitcoin. We're seeing that on um, the front cover of Bloomberg Magazine with Blythe Masters. Mm -hmm. There's a big article in Forbes this month about Wall Street's embrace of the blockchain. And the truth is that, you know, people like to say that the internet allows for the secure and instantaneous exchange of data. Uh, The blockchain allows for the secure and instantaneous exchange of value, with Bitcoin being application number one. But potentially there's other applications, other assets that can be securely exchanged on the blockchain and using the immutable record of the blockchain for and its cryptographic proofs for um, provable ownership of other assets. And so a lot of the companies that we're looking at are looking to leverage those kind of the functionality of the Bitcoin blockchain for the exchange of other assets. And that's that's an exciting area for, frankly, paying customers. Um, The Bitcoin industry is very young. There's not a lot of revenue. But some of the larger incumbent financial players are increasingly uh, interested in blockchain technology, less so Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, recently Chain.com raising $30 million and you've got Visa and NASDAQ involved. Uh, we've got the New York Stock Exchange and Goldman Sachs. And, I mean, all of these guys making investments in, like, Coinbase and Circle. So, I mean, they're definitely sniffing around in the area. We, we, we've also seen like the spells of Genesis, the card game, that uh, have put their, their assets on the blockchain. Do you see applications for like blockchain to these virtual worlds? Because I think Azeroth, which is the World of Warcraft's universe, that actually has a, like the 50, it'd be in the top 50 economies in the, in the whole world. I mean, it's a larger economy than most countries in yeah, that sense. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, analogy. And World of Warcraft is one of the most profitable video games that's ever been created in the history of all entertainment properties, by the way, books, TVs, movies. It's an incredible titan. And as you mentioned earlier, it's an interesting sandbox for economists and anthropologists and sociologists to look at behaviors in virtual worlds. 
the crossover, to your question on the crossover of cryptocurrencies and online video games, uh, we've talked to a lot of video game companies about that, and they have a lot of concerns about money laundering and the potential um, bad actors using video games to uh, move funds around. So I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs in the video game sector, and I'm not aware of any major publisher that's looking to incorporate a cryptocurrency uh, at this time due to the AML and KYC type concerns. Yeah, but they, they themselves are issuers under the FinCEN guidance of World of Warcraft Gold or any of this stuff. Yeah, they... They would say that they don't facilitate a cash out capability, which I think is what FinCEN is most uh, interested in. Well, they're still an issuer. They're not necessarily an exchanger under the FinCEN guidance. Yeah, and I, I, I think the FinCEN guidelines um, strictly apply to some video uh, persistent worlds with sophisticated economies where they're like issuing their own something. currencies. I think they could get caught up in that, but I'm not aware of FinCEN taking any enforcement or regulatory action on video games as issuers. You know, as a, as a tech investor, what about this concept of augmented reality? And I mean, I'm not sure if you've, you've seen The Void, but it's a startup out of Linden, Utah, and they're basically making a, an actual physical space that then gets mapped over with virtual reality. And so it becomes almost like a theme park or a movie is kind of their, their way of uh, monetizing this. And you actually like wander around inside the, and you can feel the walls and you can have like the heat lamp. And so when you run across a fire in the virtual reality world, you actually feel the heat and there's like mist and all of these things. So it kind of gets back to, the the good wife episode well like what is real Real's going to change right like what happens when when all of our assets are or are being intertwined with these blockchain type tools it's a great question and kind of a fascinating thought experiment i mean in many ways some of the Bitcoin skeptics say, well, why do I need a virtual currency? And, you know, my credit cards work just fine. Or I really like uh, the U.S. $100 bills is great for me. But most of the money that moves around the modern financial systems is all digital anyway. It's just a matter of do you want to own a currency where policymakers, politi unelected po politicians and central bankers can print trillions of dollars at will? Or do you want um, an electronic money that's algorithmically defined and has a limited cap on it, which I think is important? And there's um, different schools of thought on that. And a lot of the schools of thought are influenced by people's personal politics or, or philosophical preferences. Uh, you see a lot of people in the Bitcoin community that are suspicious of central authority, suspicious of central banks, worried about inflation. These are debatable topics, but it's certainly something that is, uh, activates people's excitement in the Bitcoin community. When you talk about new technologies like the, the virtual reality and augmented reality that you talk about, that's one of many really exciting um, new industries that I see Silicon Valley venture capitalists getting excited about. I would add drones into that. I would add 3D printing. Robotics. Would, robotics blockchain-based technologies, cryptocurrencies, augmented reality. These are some of the really early industries that venture capitalists like myself get excited about. We've decided to focus on blockchain technology in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and we're one of the few very dedicated sector-focused funds um, that wants to help uh, enable growth in this young industry. Well, doesn't that raise an interesting tension between like the motivation for people? We, we, there have been lots of studies done where people are motivated not necessarily by money, but by recognition or some other 
uh, reason. Particularly in Bitcoin, you know, there, like you said, there are a lot of people motivated for particular reasons in this industry. And if we look at a lot of the big tech giants out there, like Wikipedia, for example, like no amount of VC money is going to buy you that type of influence. How's that tension playing out in this in this uh, blockchain industry? Uh, for, like looking at it as a VC, uh, what what are the market dynamics? How how is that tension playing out between people who want to do the fun, creative, science project work versus like the actual monetization, bringing in a top line work? Because uh, like I guess you can sit around and play on your science project, but that doesn't necessarily mean you make any money doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how does all of this stuff, how do these tensions, how do you see all these tensions currently and how do you think they're going to continue playing out in the future? That's a great question. Ideally, we all want to do work that we're passionate about, that um, you're surrounded by other like-minded people that you respect, and that it's also lucrative. One of the things that I am, am always blown away with in the Bitcoin ecosystem and people that are looking at blockchain technologies and how to apply those technologies to innovate and disrupt existing industries is how passionate these people are. It's, it's a wonderful brand new industry, bleeding edge technology to be a part of. And people um, come from different walks of life into the Bitcoin world. Uh, in particular, some for political and philosophical reasons. Some, they see an asymmetric return profile as an investor. That's what we see. To me, Bitcoin is characterized by a bunch of successful indicators and markers. Number one, incredibly passionate, smart people in an industry that is poorly understood. Um, there's a lot of academic evidence that shows that when market dynamics, like in the stock market, for example, when information is distributed evenly, it's very hard to get an information edge. Most people know most things at the same time. When you find brand new industries that are, have disproportionately high number of smart people involved in it, but is still misunderstood, I would argue as an investor, there's a great opportunity for an asymmetric return profile to the upside. And so that's what we look for as venture capitalists. How can you make five times your money, 10 times your money, 100 times your money or more? And, and ultimately, the job of a venture capitalist is to help a small company turn into a large company, both with capital and expertise, introductions. But also our other job is really to present a compelling return profile to our clients, high net worth individuals, family offices, endowments, pension funds are, are the traditional investors into venture funds. So it's an exciting industry from, from that perspective because you've got tons of smart people, a misunderstood technology very early on, and venture capitalists, at least a few of us, that think that this is so important and so disruptive that we want to spend all of our time helping to build this industry. With respect to your question on some of the tensions with profitability versus science projects, that's a tough one. The Bitcoin industry right now is so early that they're, they're really, and, and blockchain-enabled technology companies is the term we use, there really haven't been a lot of exits yet. There haven't been um, companies that have gone and, and grown to massive scale and, and um, that are post-revenue and, and producing a lot of cash flow. And so in these early markets where there's a lot of young companies that are not producing cash flow, the, the money needs to come from somewhere. And usually that source is the venture capital community. And we're a part of that community. And by our count, over the last 18 months, there's been about $850 million invested in blockchain-enabled technology startups. And that's a big number. But it's important to remember that there's only a few dedicated uh, venture capitalists to the sector. So blockchain capital is one of them. Digital currency group would be another. Pantera, that, that's Barry Silbert. Barry Silbert. Pantera would be a third. 
But after that, the list drops off in terms of dedicated venture funds that have a mandate to invest in the space. A lot of the other venture, Silicon Valley venture capital firms have made maybe one or two, sometimes three, Bitcoin investments. So that'd be the Andreessen Horowitz with like their Coinbase investment. That would be a but great that's example. That's pretty much the only, yeah, the only and, one they've got. Andreessen Horowitz would be one, Google Ventures, RRE, Lightspeed. RRE's made quite a few. Yeah, they made a lot. Yeah, um, Coastal Ventures, Benchmark. So most Silicon Valley venture firms have made one or more blockchain or Bitcoin and um, VC investment. However, they don't have a mandate to continue to do so. So if the industry doesn't continue to grow, if it doesn't show metrics that get K- venture KPIs. capitalists, yeah, that's K- key performance indicators. <laughs> Correct. And so I think um, you know, Trace, we're both here in Montreal right now at the Inside or the Scaling Bitcoin Conference, and the conference is about kind of sorting out an in, in kind of an internal food fight going on from that's really. Um, uh, related to, to technical scaling issues, but also governance issues. And I think it's important for all the stakeholders of the Bitcoin ecosystem to realize is that there's no God-given right to venture capital money in a brand new industry. If the industry can't prove a decentralized governance model, if it can't scale out technically, a lot of the generalist venture capital firms that you just mentioned They don't have any ironclad commitment to keep funding Bitcoin companies. And in absence of cash flow and growth in the industry, that could significantly hamper uh, the ecosystem. Yeah, because then development just doesn't really become sustainable. I mean, then we go back to being hobbyists instead of professionals. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. Industries that innovate, industries that disrupt market incumbents are run um, usually by big thinkers but ultimately are professional corporations. So uh, we love backing passionate entrepreneurs. Oftentimes these are young entrepreneurs, but as businesses grow and scale, they take additional capital, they take additional um, financial capital capital. and human capital. That's the the point I was gonna mention. And so as the Bitcoin ecosystem evolves, it's important that user metrics continue to grow to so fresh venture capital flows in that funds the losses of the industry, but also human capital. And I think um, Bitcoin and blockchain-enabled technology companies are blessed with an abundance of human capital right now. More than it deserves, really, when you look at the hourly rates that some of these people could be charging working on something else. That's a good point. And so, you know, I think it's important for Bitcoin to kind of move past some of the internal divisions and kind of move the industry forward um, together uh, with constructive dialogue. And, and the conference that we're at right now is all about that. Because what a brand new industry like Bitcoin can't afford is a bunch of self-inflicted wounds. When you're going up against some of the largest um, entrenched interests in the world, literally, both sovereign nations and regulators the, and, regulators <laughs> and large banks and multinational institutions, um, it's important that the technology have a great use case, be better, faster, cheaper, and also not suffer from paralyzing internal divisions. Yeah, and I also think it's important to, I don't know if you've ever read the book Flow by uh, Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. He was a PhD at the University of Chicago, psychologist, and spent his entire career researching happiness or joy, this, this state of being that he termed it flow. And a lot of uh, VCs, they, they like to measure how much time has been spent in flow. Because different act, what uh, Dr. Csikszentmihalyi found is that lots of different activities provide flow, uh, whether it's 
you know, mountain biking or surfing or dancing or coding uh, computer programs or mathematics. You can get both mental and physical activities that give you flow. And some of the most flow-inducing activities are both mental and physical at the same time. And it's one of the reasons that surgeons have such a high life satisfaction is they get into flow on a regular basis. They make good money doing it. They are helping the world and they're highly respected as a result. You know, they have the social status. They kind of get all four at the same time, as opposed to say the starving actor or actress uh, that doesn't have any money, but gets into flow like from their acting. And so, you know, there's this tension between the work that we do and whether it puts us in flow or not. And, in order to get into flow, he actually gave a bunch of rules for like what it takes to get into flow. And some people get into flow because uh, there's a dark side to it. People can get uh, addicted to flow. And in fact, uh, one of the reasons for a lot of drug abuse is that people are actually seeking the highs that come from being in a flow state uh, through some chemical means. So because when you get into flow, your brain actually has this potent a neurochemical state that you can't actually recreate through any drugs that have been found, but you can, in certain instances, get one of the five neurotransmitters. So like cocaine, for example, gets you a little bit of the high that you usually get, that you will get from, from flow, but only in that point. And so people abuse drugs or, or otherwise get addicted to trying to get into flow. And one area where people get addicted in getting into flow is with uh, like extreme sports. You know, because part of getting into flow is you have to have a challenge that is the optimal part, the optimal range would be about 2% more challenging than what your skill level is. So if you're faced with doing work that is your, your skill level is significantly above the challenge, then you're going to be bored. And if it's significantly more challenging than your ability, then you're going to have anxiety. And so, but if you can get into this sweet spot where you're you're facing a challenge, and it's by overcoming these challenges that we become a more a, a more uh, complex person, which is you know why flow helps drive the evolution, which is what it which is what it has done. You know, and, and it's not just humans that get into flow. You know, other animals will get into flow also, like dogs or whatever. That that helps. I think I think what's important is that we need to channel this desire to get into flow towards the more productive uses. For example, you know, I think that the prosecutor, you know, I think they derive lots of flow, you know, doing the investigation. Uh, like Special Agent Tigran at the consensus conference, he was like, "Yeah, it's up till three o'clock in the morning, like tracing through the blockchain, and then it finally clicked." You know, and, and it's so often like it finally clicked, you know, because you're in the flow. Uh, so, you know, the prosecutors, they're getting into flow like chasing the mouse. And the mouse, well, he's getting into flow, you know, evading the prosecutor, evading the cat. And so ironically, like Albrecht might have been the largest addict of all on the Silk Road, you know, trying to get into flow. He had a master's degree in like a hard science. He could have done anything else with his life. And yet he chose to, uh, you know, run the Silk Road knowing that there could be potentially life in prison. Now he's serving that sentence because, you know, I think in a lot of cases he was actually, you know, it's kind of like a skydiver or a mountain biker or other extreme sports athletes. And they die on a regular basis because they're trying to get into flow from their helicopter skiing or whatever it is. So as a venture capitalist, as we're trying to weigh this 
balance between getting into flow and and doing something that we really enjoy that gives us the recognition but is also profitable like what what is it that you want to see from the people coming to you like trying to with their business plans or like trying to raise capital i mean what is it that you want to see because i mean ultimately like life's too short to be like just wasting our time right so i mean what do you want to see and what do you want to see for them individually but also professionally uh, a great question and i'm only passingly familiar with the concept of flow and i haven't read the book that you mentioned and the Ross Ulbricht example is an interesting one. Not only was Ross potentially intoxicated uh, by the flow of evading law enforcement, but so were the very law enforcement agents that were pursuing him that are also now uh, going to jail. Yeah, and some of them are in jail, too, like yeah. Carl Mark Forrest so and Sean Bridges. Only, only in Bitcoin can you uh, come up with these types of stories oh, where and, and truth is stranger than fiction. And you want to know what's actually kind of even more scary about that? I'd actually met with, uh, I think... Travis, who was CEO of CoinMarket, about making an investment there. And I was, you know, very firm, like, look, I want a chief compliance officer. I want an AML plan. And they just weren't there. And so I passed on that investment and instead invested in Kraken because they're at least trying to do that, right? Well, now, like, you know, these former, Dodged a bullet on that one. former DA agent, yeah. like, being the chief compliance officer, he's now going to go to jail for a long time because of this. I mean, it's just such a crazy industry. Uh, especially for us as VCs. Yeah, no, you, and, and you're a longtime investor in the space, and, and so I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of the dynamics that I'm about ready to articulate, but we've been investors in lots of different sectors as venture capitalists and also hedge fund managers. managers. So we've been active in the public markets, active in the Silicon Valley venture capital ecosystem, in both bear and bull markets. And, um, you know, I started my career in the mid-90s at E-Trade, so I have a background in financial technology. And, and you know, good markets are, and bull markets are incredibly exciting, and bear markets just feel awful. So for us, flow, um, to, to use the construct in which you described earlier, is really about the thrill of the chase. How, finding that next great large company uh, of tomorrow that's a baby company today. The next Google, the next Uber. Yeah, that finding that humongous large company 10 years from now, if you can find that passionate entrepreneur and help them grow the business today and be a part of that growth story, that's incredibly intoxicating and hopefully enriching as well for you and, and your clients. Oh, yeah, you point to something, you're like, I built that. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and, and I've been a, a startup founder. I've worked for larger tech companies. I've been a hedge fund manager, and I've been a venture capitalist. So I know what it's like to be on the other side of the table. I've hired and fired CEOs. I've been a CEO. I've been a founder. And I actually think that really helps as a venture capitalist. Um, I always feel bad when we pass on um, a deal or an investment where the entrepreneur is hardworking and passionate, but for whatever reason, it just didn't fit our criteria. Because I've I've felt that feeling of yeah, dejection. Been on that other yeah, <laughs> and but I think that empathy helps, and also you know you can look at a, a given business opportunity from multiple angles, and and that's a huge help. But for flow for us is the investment process. It's finding that needle in the haystack uh, of something that becomes not only lucrative, but hopefully changes the world as well. And there's I've can't remember an industry, maybe the in the mid-90s in the internet, where there was opportunity to change the world as much as Bitcoin can do and the underlying blockchain technology. So you don't just want to work with passionate entrepreneurs. That's awesome. You don't just want to make money. That's also great. Um, but hopefully you want to make a big impact in the world. And, and Bitcoin, I think, has that opportunity. When you talk about what could be incredibly disruptive, what could totally change the world as we know it for our children. 
And, and so we feel lucky to be involved uh, with passionate entrepreneurs that are trying to change the world every day, uh, help them in every way we can grow their business with human capital, with venture capital, with advice. And, and it's an industry that, that draws a lot of passion and a lot of talent. And so that's, that's really where you want to be. Yeah, I mean, as Steve Jobs says, you know, make a dent in the universe. Like, we're trying, right? <laughs> the, the reality distortion field. Yeah. So we're, uh, you know, it's been a, just a, a phenomenal interview. Thanks for uh, taking the time to be with, with us. We've had Bart Stevens from Blockchain Capital today, VC in the space, over 37 companies that he's invested in uh, with the firm. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Trace. get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.